This is Inside the Box. I'm Trevor Barrett, and I am here with my good friend, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. It's a bright, sunny summer's morning here in Michigan, and I'm really eager to get into our conversation as we get this series truly underway, episode two. Episode two, here we are. (laughs) I'm excited as well. I really enjoyed our episode one. Um, I thought that was a fun conversation, uh, and I learned a lot in it. But I will say, one of the reasons that I reached out to you at the very beginning anyway was that I always hoped you and I would have a chance to talk about this uh, this box set someday. And so that day has finally arrived. And I'll, I'll just kind of uh, let people know my my overall take on this is that you and I are just about to embark on a conversation about one of the monumental achievements in human history. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not going to, to limit that to in, you know, art cinema or world cinema or cinema or even just, uh, you know, storytelling. I think that uh, Satyajit Rai's The Apu Trilogy is one of the most glorious things that, uh, that we have uh, to reflect on humanity and on our experience in this life. I think it's deeply humane, and I can't wait to get your thoughts and insights and, uh, and get this episode going. So uh, so those are, there's my thought. Well, uh, <laughs> way to raise the bar, Trevor. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, we're not just talking about movies here today, David. This is uh, just one of those just beautiful things. And, yeah. And, I don't, I, and I, 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 while I'm, I may be being a little bit, you know, hyperbolic i am i am also sincere when i say that i i do think that this is a, a glorious a, achievement and um I, it's remarkable how it came about i think we'll talk a little bit about rise uh you know experience getting into this this is his first work as a filmmaker and uh, you know getting into what these films do and say and uh, and the the efforts that went into presenting them to us at all uh, I think it's all just uh, something pretty pretty special so so what are what are some of your opening thoughts on just the Apu trilogy or your experience with the Apu trilogy in the past sure well let's go ahead and get into that so yeah uh, as I was kind of building my criterion collection and learning more about world cinema kind of in the early years of this current century I would say is you know the early 2000s when I started kind of getting kind of more serious about you know, uh, international cinema and cinema as a kind of highly developed and uh, kind of uh, forward-leaning art form. Uh, one of those kind of blind spots that, uh, you know, people who talked about what makes for a Criterion collection film and what's in and what's not yet in the collection, one of those big blind spots was uh, the Apu trilogy and specifically the works of Satyajit Rai uh, as kind of, and some people would use it almost to Criterion's detriment, like they weren't taking Indian ser- cinema seriously or they were you know, very focused on you know, America, Europe, and Japan. And, you know, and so there was almost kind of a dismissive or, or critical aspect to the fact that you know, the Apu trilogy wasn't part of the Criterion collection or that you know, none of such Arjit Rai's films were for that matter. So that was kind of my first exposure or, or introduction to this guy, this, this director. Um, so it was kind of, you know, already had sort of a, a bit of a reputation in my mind as I was, again, just kind of learning and understanding that these films had 
made a pretty big impact at one point back in the 1950s um, when the whole art house cinema scene was kind of first breaking out and developing as kind of this uh, kind of particular school of, of watching film and understanding film and, and using cinema as a way of it kind of enlarging our own consciousness and, and just, you know, more richly understanding the world. So, so that was kind of the, how the stage was set. Uh, somewhere along the line, I was actually given a VHS copy of Pathar Panchali, the, the first film of the trilogy, and had a chance to watch it. And it was, of course, you know, a kind of, you know, slightly blurry, degraded presentation. But I thought it was pretty interesting, kind of this life, look at life in kind of rustic rural India, um, and, you know, kind of this moving story of this young child and his family and, you know, all the experiences that they went through. But, you know, I kind of watched it as almost sort of an anthropological specimen, like, well, that was kind of interesting, kind of unique. But I, I didn't, you know, it didn't strike me as like timeless art of the high degree that you've kind of uh, sort of set the stage for here. And and part of that was the presentation. Part of it was just, you know, I just didn't see it in any other context other than here's a VHS tape of a film from India from the 1950s. Um, and then, you know, as, as time went on and, and I became aware of the fact that one of the main reasons that this wasn't featured in the Criterion Collection is that the film itself had been pretty severely damaged and that, you know, it was almost doubtful whether a usable copy could be salvaged uh, and that the presentation itself was a problem because there just perhaps were not good enough copies out there. You know, there were worn prints and things of that sort, so you could still see the film, but, you know, Criterion wants to do it right. They don't want to just put out a a subpar uh, edition of, especially of a film that has such a lofty reputation, or, or the three films actually. So, you know, time goes on, I'm into other things, and then, you know, one day the announcement is made is that this heroic restoration has taken place, that uh, they've summoned all the best technology and combed the world for every, you know, last, you know, decent quality version of the film. And have you know resurrected this the, these three films from the ashes uh, after the the original negatives were damaged and in many cases completely destroyed in a catastrophic fire, I think in the early '90s when that took place. Mm-hmm. So, so now I'm I'm kind of really intrigued because now not only do we have the chance to see these, uh, you know, very almost legendary films. But but now you know there's also this kind of incredible you know story of how they were restored and and that's kind of an interesting sort of sub theme of the Criterion Collection of how they take you know badly damaged and and you know marginal and and almost presumably lost works and and bring them back to life. So you you had all of this excitement, all of this energy in the mid twenty teens, and then I I uh, was fortunate enough to actually see these three films on the big screen over in Detroit. You know, I live over on the west side of Michigan and Detroit on the southeast corner, but uh, my wife and I went to the Detroit Institute of Arts and they have a theater there that kind of specializes in art house films. And it's typically, I would say, not worth the two and a half to three hour drive to get there just to see an art house movie. But, you know, the Apu trilogy all in one day, you know, three showings consecutively, uh, this, this new restoration, you know, touring the country, uh, absolutely. Let's go ahead and check it out. Let's make a day of it. And I was enraptured. These were really beautiful films. And I think shortly after that is when the uh, you know Criterion Collection announced that they would be releasing this as a box set. So uh, even though I've had this box set on my shelf and I had watched the supplements, I have not 
actually return to those films uh, until you know prepping for this podcast. Uh, I I had a wonderful experience seeing him in the theater. It left a very powerful impression on me, but probably because I'm always so busy with podcasting about other movies or catching up on other new releases or whatever, whatever. I had never taken the time to revisit these three films until uh, it was right there in my queue. And my goodness, what a transporting experience it's been over this past week of uh, re-watching each of these films and then re-watching them again and reading up on them and going through all the supplements again and just really sinking myself into this set. I mean, this, you know, let me just give you my bottom line right now is these are awesome, incredible movies that everybody should watch. This box set is pretty staple, mandatory for anybody who's a serious criterion collector, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I probably need to chastise myself a little bit for not getting back on these movies a little sooner than I did. Uh, but I'm really glad I've had this experience, and I, I I have so many good things to say about them. Yeah, so that's my opening take. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, 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 in many ways, it reflects mine, uh, only I didn't get to go to Detroit to watch him on the big screen. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> wish you'd have been there, Trevor. It would have been uh, great. <laughs> it, it really would have been fun. Um, maybe someday we'll have to figure out a... a, a, a a, a film or a set of films that would be worthy of, of that kind of trip. This would have certainly fit the bill, but, you know, wasn't thinking about that back in 2015. Um, you know, for me, I, I remember watching, you know, I heard about them too, and I heard about Such As It Rise films on the Criterion forums, you know, again, like you said, as people saying, well, the Criterion Collection's fine, but... <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then when they finally released, I think it was The Music Room and Charolata that came out first, uh, there were a lot of people uh, exclaiming about them, and I got those and enjoyed them. Um, and then I remember watching the story of film, you know, that massive mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mark Cousins um, I can't remember how many episodes it is. And he talks about Pather Panchali a little bit. And, you know, it, it, it says it's something quite special. But in my head, it was kind of like, you know, oh, look at this pretty special um, Indian filmmaker whose debut film turned out to, you know, really capture some things. And it shows like Apu, you know, wandering around and playing in the dirt and stuff. And I thought, well... That looks like it'll be interesting, but I'll admit there have been plenty of times when, you know, a, a, a kind of a famous uh, international film has, uh, I finally sat down to watch it, and while it is special, it also feels like maybe it's a curiosity, like, oh, look, at this is the, his debut film, you know, he, he was really on to something, but he reaches his great heights later on. Mm-hmm. So I, I wondered if these would really be able to meet the expectations that I, you know, kind of had set in my mind based on other people's opinions, but maybe had my doubts about. And uh, then everyone was watching him over that year in 2015. Um and finally getting my hands on them and watching them, I just, I remember being transported as well. And, but but even going back just a little bit, I, I remember when the trailer, uh, the Janus trailer came out that showed the a bit of the restoration and kind of announced that, you know, it, w- it was coming out. And that goes into the history of what happened to these films. You know, it talks about uh, Rai making them, I think he was 31 years old. Uh, when he started filming Pather Panchali. And then 40 years later, he dies in 1992. 
And a year after that, the films get in uh, caught up in a fire in London. It was 1993, and are essentially deemed to be unusable. I mean, yes, there are various prints and and you know poor uh, poor copies of them out there. If you're really curious, but you know it doesn't doesn't seem like they'll ever be usable again to get a good restoration. And then the, the, the trailer starts to flash forward and you've got the music of Ravi Shankar uh, playing in the background and you see them start to, to work on these damaged elements and you see them pulling out the, the uh, pieces and there's gunk on them and burned pieces and they're in fragments and start to, to really uh, attentively, you know, carefully, reconstruct what they can of these films and i'll be honest david i i i I remember tearing up (laughs) yeah Yeah. i don't know why i still can't quite understand why something like that when i had no experience with the films yet would would make me emotional i was sitting there with my wife and i was like oh this this i love watching their restoration trailers and 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 things like that and I remember this one just striking me. I'm sure it was a combination of the um, the music and a little bit of what I was seeing on the screen, but just seeing the attention and seeing you know people basically saying this is worth it. You know, this is hours and hours and hours and hours of painstaking labor, but it's it's a pleasure to be able to do this. It just comes off in that trailer and it made me emotional. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to see them at that point. And they, they blew my mind even, even by that point when everyone's talking about how special they are over that summer and, and fall, uh, finally seeing them, I, I was right on board and maybe even leapfrogged over people's, uh, <laughs> you know, exclamations for them. Um, and then, you know, similar to you, ever since then, they've remained some of my favorite films, but hadn't really revisited them a ton uh, until preparing for this for this episode. So, so here we are. Here we are. Um, I think it's worth uh, stepping back a little bit to, you know, uh, what brought Satyajit Rai to even be in a position to make these films. Um, and I don't know if you want to kind of go over that or if you'd like me to preview it a little bit or, or uh, oh. what are your thoughts on on his pre-Pather Panchali film experience? <laughs> well, yeah, let's just give it give it a little bit of time to his bio. I'm not certainly not an expert. I've just picked up a few things just yeah, from recent <laughs> readings. But, but you know, he comes from a, a, a pretty, you know, well-to-do family, an artistic and creative family. And he, uh, much like the character of, of Apu that we see portrayed in these films, uh, he's a young man with vision, with sensitivity, perception. Uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's a witness to the world, and he's, he, he acutely feels the things that are happening to him. And you definitely get the sense that Satyajit Rai had a, had a sense of his own um, destiny, you know, and, and again, it's not an arrogance, I don't believe, but he certainly has a sense of his capabilities. And, and so, uh, he had, uh, had the chance, uh, to, you know, see, you know, international films, I think bicycle thieves is, is one yeah. of those kind of formative influences. Uh, he, he was apparently also a fan of, you know, classic Hollywood. I mean, he was a, a cultured young man who understood, 
that there was a lot of interesting stuff going on in the big world out there beyond his own kind of native Bengali culture. And and I think it's also important to recognize already that the you know, Indian cinema is a huge um you know, pr- producer of, of film art and had been even way back in the, you know, earlier years of the 20th century. It's just that, you know, the cultural chasm between East and West, especially at those, that time, w- was so vast that there just really was no bridge between, you know, India and Hollywood other than, you know, the very occasional exotic flavorings that Hollywood might want to throw in if the story called for it. Uh, this changed quite a bit in 1950 when Jean Renoir went over to India. Uh, you know, the great European French director had been exiled to the United States for a while, did some work in Hollywood, and then took it upon himself to make a film called The River, which I think, I don't know if we've talked about it, if done a podcast. Or, yeah, we have, right? Hmm. And and I don't know. Uh, I, I, I know that... Uh... It seems like we did years ago, you know, but, and I've, I've <laughs> blogged about it. But but Sajajit Rai, um, you know, somehow or another finagled his way into that scene. And, of course, the river is important because it was one of the first, uh, you know, uh, European slash uh, Western films to go actually into India to film on location, which, you know, in that time was a very arduous undertaking, you know, getting the equipment over there and the crews and and uh, just all of the logistics involved. Uh, but Rai was an advisor and, and I think was part of the crew. And uh, having already seen Bicycle Thieves and, and thinking about his own interest in in you know becoming a, a visual storyteller, not just a writer, which he was also a writer, but he also had a visual and artistic gifts, uh, and you see evidence of that in the in the supplements here, and also in the uh, the, the the little uh, pamphlet, the the booklet that's included in the set. You know, much like Akira Kurosawa, he had a gift for creating his own visual storyboards, and they're very sensitively rendered. He's not mm-hmm. just kind of roughing in. They're very nice visual images just on their own terms. So he had a very strong sense of what he wanted to communicate in uh, in in his first film, which was Patra Panchali, based on a novel by a writer whose name I won't even begin to try to pronounce. <laughs> uh, BB will call him, right? <laughs> so, um, but 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 you know this this story, uh, Pathra Panchali, which I think is um, uh, Song of the Little Road or Little Song of the Road. I uh, apologize for f- yeah, fumbling that. Song Song uh, of the Little Road. Song of the Little Road, uh, uh, right? On your DVD cover, yeah. or your Blu-ray cover, it it's very small type underneath the big Father oh, yeah. Panchali. There That's how I always because okay. Song of the Little Road doesn't make much sense to me, so I never remember it either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's basically a story about a a. I think it's actually the, the novels themselves are actually more about stories of the village. It, it, uh, Rai kind of focused the attention on a particular family and and ultimately on a particular individual. Uh, this boy Apu but even for the first I don't know what half hour or whatever 20 mm-hmm. minutes of, of uh, Patra Panchali Apu hasn't even been born yet <laughs> so we're really getting to know the village his parents his big sister and kind of the relationships that exist in that in that environment there um, so 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 Rai basically had this idea of he he wanted to adapt this I think popular and and already somewhat classic uh, coming-of-age story. I think these novels were written in the 1920s, so they'd had a few years to just kind of settle into popular consciousness. And again, he was doing a different type of filmmaking that was, than what was sort of the conventional way of Indian uh, style of filmmaking, where it was, you know, these big 
already back then, these kind of omnibus three-hour epics with song and dance and romance and comedy and action and, I mean, kind of like everything thrown in. You know, there's little bits and pieces to please all parts of the audience, and you would just settle into a, a long movie and, and, you know, be entertained by the bits that spoke most most uh, directly to your tastes, or maybe you enjoyed the whole thing. But Rye, I think, had a sense of how Hollywood and Europe made their movies, and I, it seems to me like he had an idea of connecting with those cultures as well as representing his own. And I think that is part of the brilliance and inspiration and what makes these films so unique is that they're really coming from a very natural and native um place in the Indian uh, and specifically in the Bengali culture uh, and portraying a way of life that already at that time that these films were made was already becoming kind of receding into the past uh, but he's capturing it very what feels very authentic very lived in and is is very refreshing and 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 just a very invigorating perspective on life and I again we we will get into those, those larger themes but I think that's that's really kind of what what struck, struck out to me is that you know he was a, a young man with with a very clear vision and like you said he was in his early 30s when he started working on this and so you know it's it's pretty remarkable that despite any lack of real formal training really just guided by his own instincts and intuitions and his observations of what made films good he wasn't just a film fan <laughs> like like I am you know like oh that was pretty cool that was really impressive he, he internalized what he liked and what he saw as effective about these films and says, okay, I'm going to do my own version of that and tell these stories to an international audience, at least potentially, uh, and, and connect with people on this universal level by talking about the particular experiences that are familiar to me as a child growing up in a society very similar to this, even though he was not a rural or, or rustic Bengali himself. Yeah, thanks, David. That was uh, 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 I, I didn't necessarily have anything else that I would have added to any of that okay. because there it, it it's just true. I mean, there's something remarkable in his attention, and he presents Apu as a similar kind of character from the very beginning. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it's about twenty minutes before Apu is born, and in those twenty minutes, we get to know. Uh, his, you know, in a way, we get to know three of the women in his life. Uh, his, uh, the elderly auntie, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she's she's eighty years old and and you know hunched over and um, you know she she'll become an important part of the film. We've got Apu's mother Sabarjaya, uh, Sarba, Sarbajaya, <laughs> mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, she's uh, we we kind of get to know a little bit of the issues that she is dealing with, and then um, you know, wonderfully, we get to know his older sister uh, Durga, and she's who we see first, and we kind of enter into this world, and then Apu is a baby, and we you know, Rai first shows his eyes. You know, that's that's what we focus in on. And so at the same time as you get a good look at, you know, this this child and, you know, the eyes as being a, a, a kind of a portrait of the soul or something like that, it also starts to show how the rest of the world around him uh, gets transferred inward, you know, becomes a part of him, his experience, and how he's going to be the observer, the one who 
um, who has to kind of take account of, of these other lives, uh, the turbulence in them. And so I do see uh, Rai as using Apu as uh, that character, you know, someone who might be a little bit more like him, as you mentioned, you know, the artistic Apu eventually becomes, uh, the artist Apu eventually wants to become, and its relation to to Rai himself. Now, I, I don't necessarily think all the biological details are the same, or, you know, uh, right. sorry, all of the... Uh, uh, autobiographical <laughs> all those the, the biographical details i said biological um all <laughs> the biographical details i don't think they're necessarily the same uh but i think the the way to to experience life and and really show how to feel you know and, and comprehend a little bit deeper what these characters are going through is is one of the reasons why these films really really struck a chord with me um, so should we jump into Apu? I know we've been skirting around it and yeah. have, have dipped our toes into it a few times. Um, but but let me just kind of introduce these women characters, because, again, I think that a lot of the film revolves around them. Um, and uh, so, we, you know, the f- I'll start with Auntie. Uh, she's uh, she's played by Chudibala Davi. Um, who actually is, uh, you know, while she's 80 here and while she actually died before the films were officially released, uh, you know, she um, is uh, one of the professional actors in the in the cast. She had been acting for uh, much of her life and this was her her final film role in, in this as auntie. And man, does she make a screen presence? And you know, <laughs> not just because she's so unique in her in her gait and in her physical frame. I mean, that certainly is part of it. She is fragile. She is hunched over, and yet to me, somehow she looks still strong. Because how could you be anything else if you're still getting around in in that state? To me, you know, um, she's lived through a lot. She's seen a lot. But when this film starts, she's almost, I think, seen by many people as uh, an afterthought. You know, she's just there. She's in the corner. She's on the fringe. She's lived her life. She'll die soon. And, um, you know, that that's how she's kind of, uh, I think, viewed by many people. Um, but as we get going, we see that she has she's seen a lot and has a lot more going on. Uh, inside then maybe you'd maybe give her credit for it at the very beginning. Um, one character who seems to recognize this, I think, is Durga, uh, Apu's older sister. So so Durga seems to, to have a relationship with Auntie. You know, when we meet her, she's a, a child, and um, she'll be played by a different actress pretty soon in the film once Apu has also, you know, grown up into to a little boy. Uh, but at this point, when we first meet her... She's an interesting kind of uh, uh, free spirit in in the village. Um, the we 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 see that the the neighbors don't really don't really like Durga. They think that she's stealing from them and taking their fruit and and all of that. Um, and it turns out she is, <laughs> you know. But she's very interested in life. She's tending some some kittens, uh, some of the fruit and things that she she steals. She takes to Auntie. Um, to me, Durga is is one of the reasons this film is so beautiful. Um, she is youth and potential and vitality, 
and um, she has her whole life before her and doesn't seem to be stifled by her family's poverty, which is another thing that we see as the film, you know, starts to begin and open up its world to us is they're living in a, in a, in a compound, you know, kind of a a home. um, And it looks like it once was uh, very nice, but it's, it's falling apart. I mean, they're living in a shell by the time Apu is born. Um, and, and that might bring me to, to talking about Apu's mother, Sarbajaya. Um, you know, here she is, uh, the wife, uh, she's responsible for taking care of the home. Um, but there's no money to fix it. They have, um, and enough barely to get by and, and eat and for her to feed everyone around her. Um, her husband, uh, Hardihar, Hardihar, um, he's, you know, he has work, but he's very timid. He doesn't ask people to pay him for his work. And he kind of fancies himself as a writer, you know, that his his art is one day going to win out. Um, but what this has done is really put a put pressure on, on his wife and on the rest of the family. And, um, and you know, while he's off trying to, to kind of pursue his dreams, um, he may not realize it, but... What that means is that his wife is giving up on most of hers and just working to get by. And so these are the three the three women, Auntie, uh, Durga, and Sarbajaya. And these are the people who raise Apu and who, uh, you know, he gets to know. This is how he gets to know this world around him. And... Um, and so I, I, I love each one of them. You know, none of them come off as just, uh, you know, stock characters or... Uh, they, they don't even seem to be just representative, like, oh, here's an Indian mother or, you know, here's an old woman. Uh, somehow, and I, I, I can't put my finger on it, but somehow Rai gives each of them this amazing interior life mm-hmm. that they might not express, but that we can feel and which is mo- more powerful than if they were, I think, able to express it. Yeah, yeah. Each of the, these these women are... are you know, unique individuals. I mean, they do, you know, they do kind of fulfill sort of an archetypal role or they have a, a sort of a position, if you will, in this domestic drama. Uh, the auntie is kind of that link to the past and maybe even the ancient past, you know, the, the really, the old India and, and that this may be kind of a sense of uh, Bengal in a, in a moment of transition. This was a film set in like the 19 teens, kind of like the, the early years of that decade, you know, pre World War One, and you know, so still certainly colonial under the colonial rule. But but you don't really sense that presence in, in any of these films all that much, other than the occasional interspersion of an English word or, or a little bit of English uh, dialogue here and there, uh, as the you know as the Bengali languages want to do. Uh, but Auntie is almost treated as as a, somewhat of a of a deity by by Durga, the way that she kind of puts the the fruit in Auntie's bowl, and it, there's a sort of an offering, almost a ceremonial mm-hmm. type of thing. And and Durga, um, she is clearly she's a thief. You know, she 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 takes things that don't rightfully belong to her in terms of the legal order of the world, but there's also kind of a, a karmic thing going on because this orchard that uh, she's you know picking up the occasional fallen fruits from was once the property of Harihar's uh, ancestral family. He's living in the ancestral home is how it's expressed a few times. So this is property that uh, 
he's been born into, that he has a claim to. Uh, he is from a higher caste. He is a priest, and he can perform certain rituals because of the circumstances of his birth. But he's also kind of this dreamer, kind of this visionary, kind of, uh, you know, he, he he's he's a very considerate man. And so when he has the opportunity to press for his his advantage in financial matters or business dealings, uh, he he tends to back off because somebody else has has experienced some kind of adversity, you know. And sometimes it's serious, like his children have died or some other things have happened. So it's like, well, this isn't really the time to to collect on those debts that those people owe me. And of course, he has his own debts <laughs> to others that he's had to go by. So so there is this kind of. Uh, Lucy economic uh, you know relationship that he he lives within and his wife Sabrajaya she has to sort of deal with the consequences of that yeah you know, she's the very pragmatic practical minded woman who's keeping everything grounded uh, making the hard decisions about who gets paid and who doesn't and uh, what needs to be done to keep everybody fed and healthy and at least, you know, sustained uh, during these times of, uh, you know, financial drought that they're going through. So, yeah, there is this, you know, there there is kind of a matriarchal uh, system at work here. Uh, you know, the men have their role. Uh, but it is, it's, it's really fascinating how, you know, these relationships play themselves out over the course of the film. And like you say, Trevor, yeah, they are, they are not just, uh, you know, sock puppets. They, they have interiority, they have individuality, uh, and they have relatable personalities, again, that speak outside of uh, culture. I mean, you know, my wife and I, you know, Julie and, and I watch these films and she could definitely relate to Sarbajaya's perspective as she's looking at some of the, you know, decisions that need to be made and how much just falls upon the wife to just keep everything going while the husband is off on his wanderings and pursuing, you know, his occasional pipe dreams, uh, you know, not, not to reveal too much of our personal family history or anything, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, I think people can, can definitely connect with these, with these situations, even if the environment is completely, you know, different than anything they've ever, you know, experienced themselves. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that really surprised me was, uh, and you you mentioned this in when you were talking about Rai's uh, film work and you know kind of bridging this chasm between uh, East and West. These are incredibly uh, f relatable films. You know, I I didn't have a life at all like these characters. But these relationships and and then your own experiences looking at a horizon and dreaming, you know, that's that's humanity. I can't I'm sure that's that's kind of a universal thing for most. And and he does such a good job with that. I mean, he starts with with a bit that, you you know, I think is relatable. You've got Sabrajaya. Um, doing her laundry and listening to the neighbors complain because they, they about Durga. She's out stealing our stuff, and and Sabarjaya is, you know, kind of embarrassed and and uh, and mortified, and and just has this this look on her face that again she's not saying anything, but that's what we're watching, and uh, because of that, we we. I think we can relate to her. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the social pressure of being judged by your children, you know, and how well they're doing or how well they're not mm -hmm. doing. And, and I mean, who, you know, any family can relate to that because 
one's children are seen as a reflection of your success as a parent or your character or, you know, the integrity of your family. And, <laughs> and you know, th- those are all pretty, pretty relatable you know, sensations. Now, uh, maybe to get into it, what, what are some of the things that make this a, a strong film to you? Because, again, I, it's not necessarily that this is a unique story. No. I mean, maybe we'll get into, into spoilers or not, but essentially this is a family that's going to have to deal with life and death. Yeah. And we've, we've seen a lot of things like this play out before, um, but I think, maybe not quite this way. Well, I think the, the power of this film is, is how the story is told. I mean, you know, you have all the elements of the most you know overwrought melodrama if you want to go there i mean you know children dying and uh you know all kinds of adversities and hardships and feuds with the neighbors you could definitely soap this story up but i think what makes this movie really transcendent is how much is told through the power of the images and the music. And we'll get to the music in a little bit, but let's just talk a little bit about the, you know, Rise kind of narrative techniques, which are to allow the facial expressions, the, you know, the nonverbals, the, you know, the physical responses and the landscapes and the architecture um, and, and just the energy of the characters, the way they position themselves where they move across the frame uh, that's what really is so remarkable to me and again for a first-time filmmaker who's really um, just learning how to actually do this I don't even think he had made short films or done a whole lot of other you know kind of prep work to get to launching his feature filmmaking career as a director um, yeah, and, and also having to direct the crew and, and to keep all of his technical people on the same page. Um, that's really incredibly courageous and, and bold and brave to, to allow the images to tell so much of the story when you there could have been dialogue. And there, there certainly are moments where characters are talking back and forth. But so much of the story is really just very impressionistic and very visual and it's 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 just really incredible and that that's why you know there are spoilers yeah we can talk about you know who dies and and some of the plot twists if you will but the the real transport of this film is in experiencing that melding of images and music and and how these really deep impressions are made by just the the image of of uh, you know the the sensory experience of of seeing these moments unfold before your eyes. Yeah, I wonder if we might even be thinking of one of the 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 same images uh, because it's one that I uh, it stood out to me the first time I've seen it mentioned many other places. Mm-hmm. It's when Durga takes a poo uh, through that field yeah. of the blowing grass that's up you know up you know up above their waist to show him the train yeah which is it's a it's a bit of a journey from their homestead that they, they they've heard the the sound of the train in the distance and they, they know that there's a certain path you can take to see it but they've never seen it and and of course it introduces the train motif which is so important throughout the subsequent other films uh but it is it's 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 magical it's it's wonderful the moment yeah yeah there's there's something about uh, Durga in that scene that just I I don't know it, it's it for me it's how the the movie just uh, works and transcends anything that I I really can think of mm-hmm. 
you can see her 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 I don't know you can almost see her soul I don't mm-hmm. know a better way to put it mm-hmm. you know here's a little girl who has been brought up in poverty and with no real connection to anywhere else in the world um, and yet look at how vast her soul is when she's taking her little brother to look at that train and she's you can feel her yearning you can feel the desire you can feel her bursting inside with all of these other emotions you can see greatness you can see so much more than just this little girl who's you know wants to go and see a big city mm-hmm. um or something like that i mean and uh, it it breaks my heart <laughs> you know that that particular scene um, is to me more powerful than what ultimately happens when Durga dies. I mean that that's the tragedy, of course, but but it's because of that beautiful moment where we get a glimpse at at something beyond her uh, geographic, you know, uh, location. We, we just really connect with her and um, and see so much more. I, I can't express it. I, yeah. I really don't know how to express it. But it's and it's all silent. Well, not silent. There's tons of sound going on, but but they're not talking. Right. Right. You know, and Apu is watching. Mm-hmm. He's also gathering in both his own dreams a little bit, but I think he's getting to know his older sister in a way that he will never forget. Well, I think also, you know, and you've already kind of revealed that Durga does indeed pass away in the course of this film, and she does so. Uh, almost as as a consequence of her expressive uh, embrace of of reality and and, and of the elements uh, she goes out in one of these kind of monsoon rainstorms and just allows the water to wash over her she lets her hair hang she turns her face up to the sky and gets drenched and it's really another exquisite poignant poetic moment where you really see the 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 nature of this of this beautiful young girl kind of embracing life and 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 just experiencing that moment with with a sense of fullness and yet because of that you know that you can draw the conclusion that her her openness to that experience also ends up costing her her life she 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 gets sick and draws a fever and and that ends up taking her life and so it's you know the brevity of of her life is is very tragic and yet the the brevity is not um synonymous with the fact that her life was insignificant i mean that that she had a very powerful and profound life and that she she mm-hmm. <laughs> she she brought energy she brought abundance you know she brought love and vision and wisdom and compassion even though her years may have been very brief i think there's another scene where one of her friends, uh, one of her peers from a, that more well-to-do family, the one that took over the her own family's inheritance and, and purchased that orchard uh, because uh, Harihar's brother owed money when he died. And so he said, well, I'll just give you the orchard and that'll square up our accounts, right? Well, because of Harihar's decision, that is one of the reasons that uh, his family now is kind of condemned to this kind of scrabble hard scrabble existence because kind of just scraping by while the neighbors are prosperous and they have all this property uh so there is kind of this you know question about (laughs) who really deserves that and all of that but uh 
but but Durga sees one of her friends getting married. It's one of the the two weddings that we see take place over the course of this trilogy, and of course she doesn't live long enough to have that experience herself. And there's also this sense of recognition that even if she does get married, it will not be with the same, you know, ceremony and splendor, you know, uh, the the rituals and all of that 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 her friend is enjoying. And so, and then of course, there's rivalries between the two families, and sometimes they're, these girls are friends, sometimes they're they're enemies, uh, and Durga's you know kind of kleptomaniac tendencies kind of come back to haunt her there. Um, but but you're right, she is a really <laughs> powerful and, and important character in this film. She's not just the the child who died uh, that's exploited for the pathos of of that you know tragic demise. Yeah. Well, and I think you put it so well, you know, despite the brevity of her life, there's so much more there because in many measures, right. her life isn't significant. You know, no one would ever remark upon it. She didn't really do anything um, notable uh, as far as that, that would really reverberate. It's it's, again, just the interior. And I love I love the way that the film ends, um, you know, as you kind of alluded to. There's there's a, a missing uh, item, <laughs> and uh, you know everyone thinks well Durga took it, but she denies it, denies it, denies it, and in the end, after she's passed away and they're kind of moving out, uh, Apu finds that she did take it, you know this little bracelet. Yeah, she did take it, and I don't know something about that. It just again really strikes me. I mean, I'm not not trying to condone theft. <laughs> But there's yeah. something about there was a life here and there were secrets mm-hmm. that we'll never know. This is a glimpse at one, but there are secrets we'll, we'll never know um, all that Durga did, in, you know, because she was alive for every second until she was dead. And during the, that life, she was she was vitality, you know, in <laughs> in the skin. So, yeah, well, and, and, and uh, Apu's gesture, recognizing what that bracelet is, what it says what it would reveal if it were to be discovered he throws it mm-hmm. into this pond his own compassion uh, as a way of, it's it's like it's his last tribute to his sister maybe not his final one ever but it was a moment of saying i'm gonna salvage your honor this is between you and me nobody else will ever know yeah and he throws it into that pond and that little seaweed that kind of you know spreads and then closes up again i mean it's it's so beautiful <laughs> you know, such a, how can such you a even be- plan yeah. for something like that yeah. what mind could co- could conceive of an image like that and then pull it off it's beautiful yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think also you know again rye is probably speaking to his sort of more native audience if you will i mean it's a commentary on the brevity of life and how transitory so much is especially in rural india in the 19 teens and 20s and and then so many you know uh less developed cultures where you know medicine and and technology just had not quite you know developed that level um a lot of people died young a lot of people died because a flu or a virus or whatever overtook them and there was just there was no way of getting around it and we're certainly going to see that happening in in the other films as well where Life could be brutal and severe, and you really do, in a sense, have to make the most of your years. The idea that you just, you know, live somewhat responsibly and, you know, 
get checked up every so often and you'll live to a good 70, 75, 80 years old. Like, like Auntie, you know, I mean, the fact that she has survived, even though time has clearly taken its toll on her, she, the fact that she's a survivor says that there's something special going on. Mm, she yeah. she has a destiny that is pretty unique among all the characters. I mean, nobody else in this film that we see lived as long as Auntie. And it's not even clear that Apu will, you know, even though we don't know his ultimate fate. But certainly nobody else in his family made it to Auntie's advanced stages of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, should we move on to the second film, uh, Aparajito? This mm-hmm. this was not intended, uh, Aparajito. Uh, Rai was making Pather Panchali, and um, that was going to be it. But it, That might have been the only film he ever made, as a matter of fact. He, yeah. he wasn't sure that he had a, a long-term career as a director, as it certainly turned out that he did. Well, and he put so much into that. I can see. I can see him saying, "Look, that that's my life's work." Well, <laughs> right and if we can really briefly just talk a little bit about the, the making of Pather Panchali, don't want to take too much, too long. But it's like he spent four years on that film, and it was basically waiting for the next dose of money to come in so he could pick up the project again. The fact that it was such—I mean, what I think the budget was about forty-three thousand dollars in today's currency or something like that. It's incredible that this powerful. <laughs> full all-time masterpiece film was absolutely made on the most indie shoestring you know scrape by yeah. budget you could imagine uh and and over the course of a very long shoot where you had all kinds of logistics in fact that that field episode you talked about uh, with the long flowers he wanted to do some reshoots and when he came back to the field the cows had eaten all those long flowers <laughs> so they, they could not do that so anyways i i do want don't want to derail the conversation but you know just look at the making of Pather panchali if you're not familiar with that story already it's it's really remarkable yeah, it took several years to get it out. He started it in 52, and it doesn't get a release until 55. Um, and yeah, it, it is it is something else. But because it, it makes such a splash, you know, in, in, in maybe one of the only times this was ever a good idea, he decided to make a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we get a Parajito, uh, this film where Apu has grown up now into... You know, his uh, beyond his adolescence, he's he's moving on, or he's to that stage where he can move on to the next uh, phase of life. Um, his family, at the end of of uh, Pather Panchali, has moved into the city, and Apu has gone to school. They've got ideas as to where he should go, particularly his mom does. But he's a dreamer, you know. He's he's. He sees more in life than just uh, getting by and, you know, doing a practical job. Uh, he wants some way to be able to express what he has seen. And, you know, and then, and that causes, the, the I think, some of the central conflicts of Aparajito, which is uh, subtitled, you know, for us in English, The Unvanquished. Um, what are your thoughts on Aparajito, David? I think it kind of gets yeah. squished in the middle of, um, of the first and third films a little bit. Yeah, like a lot of middle installments and trilogies, you know, it it kind of has a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a diminished reputation, it maybe just doesn't get the same kind of focus. I mean, Pathra Panchali is like almost like this mythical, um, you know, wonderful story of, of, of young childhood and, 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 you know, the coming of age into, you know, just kind of conscious awareness. 
uh, Aparagito is kind of that adolescent phase. You know, so it starts, actually, it doesn't seem like it's too much longer after yeah, the that's family true. has mm-hmm. landed in Benares, or Benarisi as it's now known, I believe. Um, but Benares is a sacred city. It's it's the city along the Ganges where there's all these ghats. These are these kind of those long steps that go down into the river temples and shrines and yeah i mean an incredibly rich and deep and you know probably overwhelming history that's developed the city to that point and i'm sure the development has gone on and yeah it certainly brought to mind our um uh podcast episode about phantom india and louis mao's films that were made in mm-hmm. in india and mm-hmm. calcutta just kind of getting in touch with that particular slice of indian society and so yeah rai uh, following the course of the the novels that he that he's adapting here takes us from the you know kind of almost jungly indian village countryside to this you know kind of world famous holy site uh, of where you know pilgrims you know, gather and and you know, there's a whole, you know, Hindu way of life that uh, the father Harihar is is has kind of returned to. Again, he's of priestly lineage, so he does kind of have a job waiting for him, so to speak. He can sit by the banks of the Ganges, read the scriptures, interpret them, and provide a service for. Uh, whether they're locals, whether they're pilgrims, um, you know, I'm not exactly sure on all the details, but he basically develops a, a very small following, as I'm sure there's probably lots of people uh, doing something along that line. But their existence is still very modest. You know, they they live in kind of a kind of a room, kind of an apartment right off the street there. Uh, it's it's pretty open air. You know, there's a monkey infestation and and a few things that happen, and and so you can tell that. You know, the mother is still, you know, pretty hard pressed, still very concerned about economic well-being of the family, and and also her son. You know, now they have an only child, and because of the circumstances, he's not in school. He's kind of running the streets, and again, you're sort of seeing uh, this incredible city through the eyes of this young boy as he's just kind of running around with his playmates and kind of just, you know learning about how this new world works that he's been brought into and probably in substantial contrast to the old world oh and i think that's a lot of what this is yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's a film where now apu is seeing all of the conflicts in life i mean he may Mm -hmm. have learned a lot about the intractability of time and a little bit about life and death in the first one but here he is seeing you know, the conflict between the city and the country and the, you know, religion and modernity and uh, all of these things, but also the conflicts within his family. I I love that in this film, um, Sabarjaya is is kind of, not selfishly, she has given up so much in her life, but she just wants Apu to stay with her and stay young and... You know, if he has to give up a little bit of, of studying tonight, that's okay because mm-hmm. she knows that time is going to pass by before they know it. And so she tries to hold on to him and, and he seems to have forgotten a little bit about how uh, how time will, will, will slip on by and, you know, kind of uh, is up against her a little bit in, in, in that. And so... Uh, there's there's the conflict even within his own home uh, uh, between him and his, and his own his own mother about what he should be doing, mm-hmm. and um, and again I think that opens up her so much because she you know she has lost her daughter, 
and her she's not losing her son in quite the same way but he's growing up he's a, he is going to leave and so she tries to just hold on to so much of the time that he has uh but in many you know again by by some measures it's to his detriment because she's she's become a burden on his ability to 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 study and to to uh uh, to go to school even, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, he's also got a, a father who's kind of a role model of being gone a lot, yeah, especially yeah. when they were in the village. The father was always off in the city doing, you know, odd jobs or maybe not even cities, but he was just away from home. And even though he's closer to home now because his livelihood, you know, keeps him right there on the banks of the Ganges, uh, you know, that's already kind of been, you know, the template's been cast for Apu that, you know, the, the men kind of go off and do their own thing and uh, don't necessarily need to, you know, sit around and be a mama's boy. So again, another very common sort of family dynamic that a lot of people can relate to, uh, regardless of whatever setting you've grown up in, uh, especially when, in, when there are so many hopes resting upon the one and only child, uh, in this family. So yeah, it, and 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 so he he does end up uh, going through some priestly training uh, a little bit later on, and and they you know another spoiler we'll throw out there is that his father passes away, and again you get the sense that this family hasn't been in Benares for very long before the father catches an illness and ends up you know losing his life uh, quite prematurely. And putting the family in a just a, a really desperate predicament now. Uh, I mean, what'd you think about the, the 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 father's role as as you know he's you know, he's he's cultivated his little following, but then one day he he staggers home. He's he's barely got enough energy left to to walk himself to bed, and you know within a few days it seems um, you know he is gone. I mean the the death scene of the father is I mean very powerful that was my one of several tear up moments for me my my mother passed away earlier this spring back in may and certainly you know that moment certainly brought those moments i had with my mom in her last days to mind uh just that transitoriness of life and this severe you know reality of losing someone who is is precious and beloved and there's no going back and there's nothing you can do about it so that was a, a powerful scene and, and the, again the depiction of the father and then that instant cut away to the the the, the birds flying up in the air uh, very very profound uh, it was a very moving moment for me and and uh, i appreciate rye's ability to capture that um <laughs> that indescribable moment so vividly mm-hmm. and i think he again somehow manages in that moment to surprise us by how deeply we can feel that relationship when maybe we've taken it for granted ourselves yeah you yeah. know harihar is not really there in the first movie you know he he's a part of it he grieves for his daughter i mean he you know and he not, was away when his daughter mm-hmm. passed away right he discovers it after the fact and it's mm-hmm. yeah that's another painful moment yeah but but maybe because of the focus on so many of the other characters i i, I certainly have take you know take Hari Har for granted and and look at him more as as an absent figure that's present because of that you know we feel his, his him him being gone and what that signifies for everybody um but in the in that scene I think that the, the again more of the deeper significance of who he is and what he has meant to this family, as well as to his own individual 
um, dreams and desires and what he has pursued because of simply who he is and what he, you know, values and wants in life, uh, kind of comes to focus. And, um, and it, it's interesting because I don't remember, uh, the, I, I, I think a part of Jito is, is, it's filmed quite differently than Pather Panchali. Uh, Rai is using more of these little editing flourishes like the cutaway to the birds that you mentioned. Um, there's a part where it cuts away from Sabarjaya to a train just you know booming along. And you know he, he's making these connections more explicit through the editing, but I, I think it works. I, I think it, um, it, it's very powerful. Uh, how he kind of connects all of these things uh, to to movement and to uh, f- fleeting, you know, in that case with the fleeting birds, you know, a very fleeting nature of of time and and sometimes the powerful movement of it as well. And with the death of Harihar, it, it, I think it makes Sabarjaya even more um, cognizant of of her own uh, demise. But also, so much of what she has valued in her life is 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 gone. You know, I mean, it, it's 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 terrifying. She had to. She had dreams with her family. She had you know ideas as to to when this stuff would come and end, and you know, grandchildren, and you know, me and my husband will do this. And there's no way to to make those dreams become reality anymore. Her daughter is gone. Her husband is gone. Uh, she's not living at home anymore. She's in this city, and it's not her home. Well, and she has to become a domestic servant just to to get by. Mm-hmm. I mean, her her options are incredibly limited. She cannot make enough money to sustain a, an independent household. That was not really plausible for somebody in her situation. So she has to make really hard decisions, and she ends up taking on kind of the role of a domestic servant just so that she has a a home to live at, you know, and it's like, you know, even though she doesn't, well, she conveys it in, in very subtle ways. It's again, it's, it's visual facial expressions and the cast of her eyes. Uh, there's an indignity and a humility and a, and, and even a kind of a disgrace that she has to take on, but she has to do so with as much dignity as she can muster because she still has this son to raise and she still has her own, um, personal, you know, pride and, and individuality, and and again, the the actress uh, Karuna Chatterjee is Banerjee, yeah, the the, the is, one who comes across yeah. well, well with her with Hardy Har, but you know, played yeah. by the same actress as in the as in Pather Panchali as well. Mm-hmm. She's just so so profound and and so um, brilliantly expressive in, in how she conducts herself in this role. I, she really is kind of the center of gravity of these first two films, mm-hmm. and uh, just a very remarkable performance. Um, again, if you're empathetic at all, your heart's going to go out to her, and, and you just think about you know, her situation and, and how many other women uh, probably had to endure similar circumstances in, in this society and, and so many others yeah. around the world. Well, and just thinking about it, this probably would have been Durga's fate, you know, this, this young girl who has all those vivid dreams that we can't, we don't know what those dreams are, but we can just see the effects of them on her life at that young age. Um, you know, that, that had to have been Sabarjaya at one point in her life, you know, all of these, these greater things, you know, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to make it. 
but it diminished and it's it's tragic it really is i mean she's she's had beauty in her life she's had these relationships but so much else has been disappointing and you know again i i think it's it's interesting how that plays out in this film as something that apu being a little bit selfish or practical or both um wants to grade against i think it's interesting you know i've read in places that uh, this film didn't do as well as Pather Panchali, and part of the reason was that the the audience, the Bengali audience, said, "No, you don't treat your mom that way," <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of yeah. balked against it. But then I think of times, you know, I remember when I was in college. I'm the youngest in my family, and mm-hmm. you know, I, we have I have four older siblings, and all of them are still around. But I remember going home from college and you know, being like, okay, I will leave tomorrow. And at that breaking my mom's heart, you know, because why would you go back to, why would you go back to school? You've got two more days of holiday. You know why you should stay until the minute that you have to leave in order to get back to class. But I was living a different life. Mm -hmm. And I remember kind of thinking about that in this film and, and realizing, wow, my mom didn't like, it's not that she was trying to like lock me down and you do what I want. It's that for her, when I leave, it's gone again, you know, not to put yeah. too much importance on me. I just mean, you know, all of that, you know, that phase of life and that, uh, you know, the emptiness when you're the one who's left behind. And I, I you kind of see, you see that in this relationship. And then, you know, I think Apu has to, has to have a really strong, you know, not comeuppance, but uh, uh, kind of, a, uh, he has to confront uh, his mom's, uh, uh, going to also be a fleeting presence in his life. He's going to live well, most yeah. of his life without these people. Right. I mean, I think it's captured quite uh, brilliantly and, and very, very poignantly in that moment where Apu is returning to college and there's his mother you know, standing at the doorframe there watching him walk up that trail and that, that trail we see several times throughout the course of this mm-hmm. film. There's always it's always a very significant passage. Somebody's coming or going and it's a big moment, you know, so it's really a nice device. But uh the mother's expression is smiling for as long as her son can maybe turn around and see her smiling back at him. And the minute he kind of turns out of sight, the the smile falls and she's left alone and, you know, her expression becomes much more pensive. And it's just, it's, again, it's, you know, a very small moment. And if you're not watching, you know, you might miss it. But if you are watching, it says so much right there. And the fact that, you know, that he, you know, he does, again, miss out on his mother's death and that, and that whole scene. I mean, honestly, when, when he came back and he's like, ma, ma, you know, looking around the homestead, looking for her. It reminded me of nothing more than the scene in Bambi, you know, where, where, uh, you know, Bambi's mother's <laughs> yeah. been shot, and and it's like, you know, this poor little boy is, I mean, even though he's a young man, he's he's orphaned. He truly is alone in this world, and and uh, that kind of sets the stage for the end. But before we get to the you know end or wrap up this film, I, I really do enjoy those scenes of of 
you know, a, a, a form of a Bengali portrait of the artist as a young man, you know, where he's going through his education, he's going through his classes, he's learning about the larger world, he gets that little globe, he's doing his science experiments, he's he's being tutored by these these learned professors, and and this this young this young boy who's been plucked out of anonymity, out of poverty, out of illiteracy, even. Uh, is is now given the gateway to to sort of make something of himself and to follow in the um, aspirations of his father, this would-be writer, this playwright, this poet. Uh, well, Apu, you know, can maybe pick up the torch that his father wasn't really able to, you know, carry all the way. Uh, but he's going to keep that dream alive for another generation. And I think there's there's some there's some beautiful. Uh, you know, family lineage things going on there. You know, the dreams of the parents realized in the children, even though it's hardly going to be a smooth path for Apu, uh, but he is at least potentially on his way. And I think there's a, there's something to be said just about, you know, how generations kind of, you know, pass their legacies on, even under imperfect circumstances. Yeah, and at that point, you know, Apu and no one around him knows how it might turn out. He might turn out just like his father, you know, eventually having to give up on dreams in order to pay pay a bill here and there that's, uh, uh, you know, weighing down on him. Um, so it's it's a real good it's a real conflict as to what what should he do, you know, what should he do with his life, uh, and we, we've all been there. <laughs> Again, oh yeah, absolutely. Again, it's it's right, something right, that right. we can just relate to. It, it might be you know, uh, this distant world and person who has a life completely different from ours. But, but those kinds of moments are, are familiar to us all. But, um, I did want to move on to, to, upper uh, Sansar, uh, soon, uh, mainly so that we can kind of, uh, start putting all of this together in some, in some ways, but I don't want to shut, shut down, uh, any further discussion of our prodigito until, you know, if, if you're, if you've got a few more things you want to kind of point out with them no i mean i I mean i think i've I've hit the main points there i mean again just because the structure of this podcast and all the material we want to cover we kind of have to skim the surface a little bit there but certainly i guess I, i guess i'll just say this this is probably, to me, it seems the most infused with kind of a, a Hindu vision of spirituality, and and so some of those scenes, going back to the Ganges and the the uh, the traditions, the customs, the rituals that are carried out there, I thought there was some interesting stuff. Some of the uh, poetic scriptures that were cited, there, there's definitely some philosophical depth here uh, yeah. to be enjoyed and appreciated. Um, again, but I think it's just all all those elements coming together in the education of a young man. Uh, both through experience and through book learning and through the uh, you know the system of, of, of teaching and discipline that that uh, you know India was going through as they were you know on this quest to you know educate uh, their their citizens and and you know introduce uh, kind of higher levels of learning and and again maybe just going back to Rai's own efforts and ambitions to connect, uh, in fact, I think there's one place where the professor says, even though we're in a you know distant, remote corner of Bengal, doesn't mean we can't learn about what's going on in the rest of the world. So he gives Apu books about the North Pole and Livingston's travels and scientific experiments and inventions, and it's like you know just getting the sense that you know India, this incredible and and marvelous and and uh, 
deeply rooted civilization um, still has to somehow prove itself or or needs to be somehow taken seriously by the West rather than just a colonial outpost or this kind of place where exotic and mysterious and strange things happen. Um, no, there, there's a culture that has a lot to say on the world stage, and I think that is kind of just another part of Rai's larger project. It's like, let's have this dialogue with the West, which I think was clearly, you know, um, the world's powerhouse when it came to economics and, and you know, kind of a global culture. But, but India needed to and deserved to be, you know, placed at that table to say let's talk about how life is let's talk about what's important and what's real and what's true and what's transcendent about human existence um, so that it's not you know just completely dominated from this eurocentric uh, or america-centric perspective yeah that's a really good point and uh, i'll admit to maybe because of my own personal you know things that i see in this i sometimes overlook uh, some of these things that I, I might do need to do a little bit more bridging. And so that gives me a, a good reason to revisit these films yet again here in the very near future to pick up a little bit more on that and and see the things that are unique uh, rather than uh, so, you know, latching on to the these, very, you know, personal uh, moments that just really resonate with me, but to also let the films continue to open up and, and show me this world and... And all of that. So, yeah, I appreciate that because I really hadn't thought about that too much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of material here, <laughs> and, 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 and of course, we're all gonna we're gonna approach it from our our vantage point. But I think the deeper you get into it, the more you realize, you know, Rai's really tapping into some pretty um, some deep philosophical and you know, I don't know, existential, even theological points, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, and so let's move on to Apur Sansar, the, the final film in the trilogy. Uh, again, just to give the English title, The World of Apu. Uh, this is 1959's film. Uh, so we have the Apu trilogy filmed earlier in the 50s, but released in 55. Or sorry, we have Father uh, Panchali filmed earlier in the 50s and then released in 55. Uh, and then Aparajito is 1956. And here's the final one, uh, 1959. By this time, uh, Rai has... Uh, uh, had success, you know, Aparajito, he, he definitely had his experience with criticism as well. Uh, but he returns to the well here to to continue on with the life of Apu. And in this case, when it begins, you know, it's not too long after Aparajito ends. Uh, he's, he's making his way as a very young man. And most of the people in his life have passed on at this point. And so he has to figure out what life he's going to live, how he's going to do it. He he he's never really been in love or in any kind of other you know strong relationship other than with some school buddies. Um, but he is nevertheless somehow a successful writer, as far as uh, you know. People who read it say that's pretty good. <laughs> but if you if you measure success by uh, you know making money and and all of that, then he he's not there yet. He's more of a gifted writer. Um, but he is he isn't willing yet to sacrifice that dream um you know he so he's he's figuring out other ways to pay the rent while he can continue to do this work uh but as one of his friends points out you know maybe you haven't 
lived all of these things to write this romance, or maybe you know, maybe some of these some of some of these things that you want to write about, uh, you need to go and have some more experiences with, and that leads us into. Uh, one of the most beautiful love stories um, portrayed on film that I can think of, uh, and it's not even meant to be a love story at first. Um, I, I, it's it's an arranged marriage of all things that <laughs> that Apu isn't even the the intended groom. <laughs> right, it's hastily tossed together. Yes. I was even, saying it's arranged is kind of a exaggerated compliment. I think. Uh, I guess it came from an arranged yeah. marriage well, uh, right. in a way, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I'm being facetious here. It's it's kind of one of these, you know, incredible circumstances. And, and you know, some might even criticize it as being so heavy-handed, such a, you know, deus ex machina, uh, how, how could this really <laughs> happen? But I, but I think, you know, the, the circumstance, um, you know, after Apu is invited to, to, to go to this wedding in the country, his friend Pulu says, hey, come along with me, it'll be interesting, you know. Uh, and I don't think anybody has any inkling that it's going to go the way that it ends up going but Apu uh, comes along almost for want of anything else to do at this point he's kind of dropped out of college because he just can't afford the tuition uh, so his studies are interrupted he's working just you know little you know tutorial types of jobs making making a pittance you know just enough to cover his rent and the, you know, a little bit of you know a bite to eat every so often uh, so he comes along and um the bridegroom for this arranged marriage to the daughter of this very well-to-do family. Um, we see him in the palanca in this little kind of carried cart uh, where he's all bedecked in all of his, you know, all the festive garb and all of that. But you can just tell pretty quickly there's something not right with this guy. He's he's having a bit of a mental breakdown. Now, whether he was mentally feeble to begin with and the the groom's family is trying to pawn him off on this other family or whether he was you know overcome by some kind of uh, a bug or anxiety or who knows what it's not really explained but he's clearly not a suitable groom in fact he has a bit of a breakdown when they try to get him out of the cart and and to come up and go through the ceremony and everything just falls to pieces but this family uh, well, what maybe despite of or because of their prosperity is also very uh, loyal and and very much guided by the the um, oh, I, won't, I won't say their superstitions, but the beliefs that this marriage has to happen at this auspicious hour. It's an astrological apparently uh, phenomenon where whatever the sun, the planets are in some kind of alignment, and so for the destiny of their daughter to be uh, auspicious. She needs to get married during this very narrow window of time. And what should it be other than Apu as the most eligible bachelor without any other real standing commitments to prevent him from from being the groom on short notice? And that's exactly what happens. And I will admit, the first time I saw it, it's like, well, that just seems a little bit, you know, heavy-handed there as a plot device. Yeah, but... But, but, but yeah. It, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I didn't. Once again, I, I went into this film probably thinking, okay, I've seen two masterpieces. Let's see the cleanup here, you know. Let, let's put in a poor Sansar. And yeah, by that time, I might have been like, okay, you know, this is going in a strange direction. Um, there had been some moments before that that I really kind of latched onto. I really like when Apu and Pulu are talking about Apu's oh, yeah. work. And, uh, you know, his friend is like, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, he's writing some books, telling him some ideas. And one of them is a love story. And Pulu says, 
well, you can't write about love. <laughs> and Apu is like, well, no, I can. I, I have an imagination. You know, I've observed things through my life. And surely the imagination has some value. And Pulu says, not with love. You know, I really latched onto that as far as just something really interesting. Um, I never would have expected uh, Rai to be able to do what he did, especially with this strange kind of, uh, you know, let's get the let's get Apu in a relationship. You know, he doesn't fall in love. Um, with a girl across the street that he sees sometime and that relationship buds, he's thrown into a marriage that is not based on love at this particular moment. And yeah, it feels a little bit strange. Um, the, the whole, the whole setup and, and also Apu's willingness to do it. You know, I, I, I don't see him as having, um, uh, I, I don't understand his motive necessarily. You know, he doesn't have to save this girl. He's still got his life, but it may, maybe it's because of the the maybe a little bit more material um, uh, stability because of her family, or maybe he is just thinking, oh, I'll 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 see what love is like, or maybe he really is just being a little bit selfless there. Um, but I, I, or, or maybe he's embracing this experience. I mean, he's a writer. Yeah. He's already gotten that feedback that you need to experience life. You can't just imagine things out of no, nothing, you know, all, all that he's written of any quality has been, you know, pretty much purely autobiographical, which is very common to young writers. You, you write what you know, you haven't really experienced a whole lot other than what you've personally experienced. And so that becomes the material for your first novel, your first film, <laughs> whatever. Uh, here is a chance to, you know, sort of launch himself into some bold, new, unexpected direction. So, so you know, Let's it's not it. really... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it's a young man's impulsive type of thing. It is interesting that, that Rye doesn't really privilege us to know Apu's interior process here. There's no scene of him kind of doing his, you know, Hamlet to be or not to be right. you know, voicing all of his options and lousy Shakespearean, you know, crutch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just that he just, he agrees to it. And so it's, it's kind of left to the viewer to decide what do you think is his motive? Is he just being empathetic? He's never even met the bride. So it's not like, wow, this girl's beautiful and her family's rich. Let's go for it. You know, it's, it is, it's just kind of the spur of the moment thing. And maybe the bottom line is that he just doesn't have a good reason to say no. He, I mean, he does initially. He thinks it's absurd. What is this? Some kind of a movie? Some kind of a fiction? Uh, you know. Uh, but then it's like, well, actually, we can do this, and he does. And as you said, Trevor, it turns into this really exquisite love story, mm-hmm. uh, all too brief, as it turns out. Yeah. Well, and I love how in in the first two films, you know, Apu is he's definitely an actor in the in the in the drama. But in many ways, he is learning about the larger world around him, you know, in in, in both of the previous films. And he's experiencing um, uh, loss and all of that for sure. I don't want to minimize that. But it is true. And, and Rai helps us see it. Apu could never imagine how beautiful and how painful this kind of love could be. He couldn't have done it, you know. It mm-hmm. just it, it, he didn't have it in him to comprehend um, where his life was about to turn because of this exceptional woman that he was fortunate enough to 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 marry and spend, um, as you just alluded to, 
all too short a time with. Um, th- this is um, this is Aparna. This is the girl who is um, who is you know left without her you know a suitable match, and the you know Apu steps in to to help. Um, and she's beautiful, you know. We can see that from the beginning. But David, I, I can't. I was trying to figure this out. Am I going to be hyperbolic here again? Um, <laughs> I, I can't think of a film that lets me see two people falling in love in quite as beautiful a way as this one does. Because they, they open their hearts. You know, they're not a, maybe even expecting love here. They're thrown into this situation, but they both are willing to open their hearts to each other. And I think both of them are surprised at how deeply um, they come to love each other. And and I think a lot of it's because they're seeing each other in different ways um, than they've ever been able to see anybody else in their in their life. I just, I just love it. I love there's there's one part I, I, <laughs> I love that Apu, who's so focused on his writing, you know, wants to write, wants to become a successful writer. He stops writing. You know, he doesn't, he can't write anymore um, because of their their marriage. And there's a part where where they're kind of at, they're talking, and he says, "I haven't written a word since we were married." And Aparna says, "Is that my fault?" And he says, "No, it's to your credit." <laughs> yeah. He is living well, his life now. He is experiencing these things he wants to be able to convey to other people, and it's taken precedence. Um, for uh, you know, he, he's he's going to embrace it, and a good thing. Well, yeah, exactly. And and again, Rai is capturing quite succinctly that sort of give and take of art. That you know, to produce great art requires a lot of time spent in isolation, self-absorption, refining your technique, producing the work, you know, editing and revising all of that. And those really are only activities that can be done in some stage of isolation. You know, maybe you can, you know, have little quick breaks and conversations and be physically present, but you really are in your own interior space to do that. Um, and, and so that often comes to the detriment of relationships. And, and we know that, you know, many of our most you know, brilliant, creative, artistic minds have also had very complicated relationship histories, and and uh, it's taken a toll on their loved ones and the in the real life that they live. And so, and obviously, investing in a marriage and and in kind of being you know fully involved and participatory in that relationship means you've got to set your art aside or or at least make some difficult choices. And and Rye as a as an artistic man obviously understood that give and take and. And I think that's what he's capturing here. But the fact is, um, there's also, I think, comments, a commentary on the on the plight of women in India and in other nations where arranged marriages were just this long-standing way of life, which is there really was kind of a roll of the dice of who who would you be uh, set with, and and so for Aparna, you can say, wow, what a what a what a dreadful, you know, step down that was from the comfort and the material privilege that she was born to, and then she's she's connected, and and now she's got to spend the rest of her life with this, you know, almost penniless, you know, not not a beggar, but but he he's a man of very limited prospects. Again, that that dreamer type that uh, his father was, who has ambitions but can never quite realize them, uh, and is content to just maybe just barely get by. Um, you know, 
without really fully considering, you know, the hardships that that's inflicting on his wife and, and eventually on his children. And yet Aparna is almost, you know, d divine in her, her uh, patience and her uh, understanding and her willingness to subvert her own um, desires, her own self-interests in order to make this marriage work and to recognize this man that she's been betrothed to um, this is her life now and she's not going to put up complaints now she does show her own strength at times and she kind of yeah. has a way of asserting herself so she's not just this passive you know doormat that just allows her husband just to you know overtake her life and she's just you know purely submissive but she does have a, a very dignified um, acceptance of of the situation and maybe she recognizes that she could have perhaps been married to that you know that uh mentally feeble gentleman just because the wedding had to go through and the auspicious hour was about about to pass so you know she's she's making the best of these circumstances and again that the fact that i think they're both really tender-hearted sensitive people who've you know miraculously or coincidentally however you want to interpret they found each other and uh there's a delight that they find in, in in just that turn of events and circumstances and i i just uh, they're open-hearted uh, eventually you know at first they're very reticent and and embarrassed you know they're vulnerable um i think they both don't necessarily feel like they are the other person's spouse other than in you know this official mm -hmm. in an official way they are but not really and they both recognize that and so they're they recognize they're vulnerable if they show that maybe they like the other person you know maybe mm -hmm. there's something there so i love i love watching them adjust to this life uh, together when you can see them carefully 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 shedding these layers of reticence in order to show the other one to kind of reach out a little bit further and show the other one, I do love you. You know, I, I am, um, f I am falling for, for, for you. You are special to me because, you know, they're, they're falling in love after marriage. You know, most of us, this, this kind of thing might happen beforehand. Um, but they're they're for, they're forced into this this close quarters in order to do so, and I I, I love it. You know, again, Apu could never have imagined this, and you know that I think the love and the joy really stretches him, and you can see that in in, in it. it. Of course, nearly destroys him um, too, uh, which maybe maybe we can get into. I don't know if we're we're there or not, but well, I yeah, I mean, I, obviously, we we follow the the arc of that relationship, and again, it's just another example of of two people in a in a society where sometimes life's options are very restrictive and very limited uh, because of your caste, because of other circumstances. You you just have to adapt. You you have to make the best of the situation, and sometimes that situation turns out to be a source of 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 great delight and joy and fulfillment, but as we see, you know, happens, it can turn just as quickly into the most crushing kind of heartbreak, which is what occurs when Aparna uh, becomes pregnant. And because of the, you know, kind of rough circumstances that they live in, it makes more sense for her to go back to her home where she can, you know, 
you know, finish up her, her maternity, uh, the pregnancy by delivering at home and getting the kind of care that she needs rather than being out in Calcutta in this fifth floor walk up apartment. Right. But unfortunately, um, she dies in childbirth and, and Apu discovers that when he comes home from his job and sees Aparna's brother standing there with a very troubled look on his face. And I don't know that the words are even uttered, but everybody recognizes that a terrible thing has occurred and Apu lashes out. And you can just tell that everything that he thought his life was on a trajectory to realize has just been completely obliterated. I mean, it's just like this devastating, hard blow of this cruelty, almost like, why did I have to experience such happiness only to have it snatched away from me and, and to be thrust into this misery and this regret and, and this, you know, anguish. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very powerful pivot point for the film and certainly sets the stage for the whole second half uh, of, of Apu's arc. And, and again, if you just look at this whole trajectory from the young boy growing up in this kind of, you know, jungly village to, uh, the sacred city of Benares. Now he's in Calcutta, he's in college, he's, he's getting educated. And then now he's a domestic, happily married man expecting to be a father and, and do the family thing. That's all snatched away. Uh, cruel, remorseless moment you know fate has basically just decreed nope i've got a different story in mind for you and and his response is just to check out you know that there was a child born that the baby was saved but he wants nothing to do with that because that baby is what took his beloved's life and he becomes this kind of wandering sadhu he's he's just going to um basically walk off into the wilderness for untold years of his life wondering what it's all about (laughs) and another another great part of the you know the vastness of of the hindu and indian tradition that that kind of wandering um itinerant philosopher thinker poet who's not really doing any of those things in a disciplined way but is just you know experiencing the reality of existence and trying to make some kind of sense of it all if there's any sense to be found i think it's interesting that he kind of shatters through to that point you know at the beginning he's he wants to share these experiences of life uh, and it's it's not trite but it's uh, it, he thinks there's a purpose in it and at this particular I mean, I'm going to be a great writer and become a man mm-hmm. of letters and have a reputation and be celebrated as this great, uh, you know, author and, and creative imagination and all of that. There, there's like a status to be found in that that's worthy of aspiring to. And now he's just, <laughs> it's all tossed overboard. Yeah. Well, what, and, and, you know, you can see it. Why should he care anymore? Um, why, why should he even care about expressing the deepness of love or even the pain you know, what's all of that about? I, you know, you can kind of see in him, uh, and this is, this is his philosophical part at this particular moment, is why should I even spend the energy, um, for, first off, having these relationships, and second off, even attempting to, to write about them? What's the point? You know, they're, it's, it's painful and, and fleeting, and I'm going to be gone too someday, and what, why you know why why should i foster this relationship with this child um and it's it's not quite 
to me so much, you know, you might think of something like the heiress where, you know, oh, you know, you're not as beautiful as your mom or, you know, you kind of resent her because the, the child because that's what took away your mom. Um which we've seen in, in a number of films. I, mm-hmm. I think I just saw it in one like last week. I can't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in this particular case, I almost got it more as him just being like, well, first off, there's some self-protection there. But also, honestly, come on, life. What is the point? And I think that brings me to one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Why are these films that are so filled with death? I mean, every character that we've come to to know and love has died. They're central to Apu's life. He's left alone at this point, you know. And yes, there is an ending to Apu Sansar that's a little bit different. But why are these films that are so filled with this so buoyant and life affirming? How does that happen? Well, I think there are just there are so many moments along the way where the richness, the beauty, the splendor of life is there to be beheld and to be celebrated. Um, and I think, you know, the trilogy does end on an up note after all of the heartache, all of the pain, all of the loss and grief. Um, there is still, as the Aparajito is translated, the unvanquished, you know, you're just not going to give in to despair and let life, ultimately crush you down or say you know what the last word on the subject is it sucks you know it's it's futile to disconnect to disconnect right that 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 that, you know despite all of those agonies despite all of the difficulties and challenges and even the you know implacable truth that we're all going to die and there is going to be that loss and that that lamenting um, but that in within it all, there is still purpose. There is still something good to to hold on to and to pass along and to relish in the moment of its experience and even in the recollection of those high points of life as we look back. I, I think that is ultimately Rye's statement in, in all of these films, and I'm not necessarily drawing us down to the full conclusion here, but, you know, I think that's, that's where, you know, I... I, I put a post on one of my Facebook uh, things the other day saying, whenever I watch a Satraja Yet Rai film, (laughs) I get the feeling I should be spending a lot more time watching his movies, you know, because they're so rich and they're so rewarding and they do tap into my essential optimism. I mean, and I, and I want to be a clear eyed optimist. I I do want to recognize the, the sorrow and the sadness and the, and the unfairness that so many, of us experience whether we live short lives or long lives the you know um there are just terrible terrible things that we all have to put up with and experience in this life and some people seem to have a much harder deal of it than than i certainly have so i want to remain humble and 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 um honest in in that assessment and yet at the same time, I, I don't want to just give in to despair and let the darkness get the last word as much as I can, you know, hold that banner forth. And I think Satyajit Rai is, is doing the same thing in not only these three films, but in so much of his other work. He, he's recognizing the, the, the heaviness of it all, but he's saying, but that's not the only way to look at it, or that's not mm-hmm. the, the, the bottom line final message to be drawn from it all. Well, and one of the reasons that I 
you know, kind of interjected with the disconnect there as a potential response to this, and and what that he does, you know, Apu does disconnect for for a time, is that the alternative is to to connect, and I I think that in a way these films go full circle because it, when we open up, you know, we talked about this at the beginning when we were talking about Pother Panchali, when when we open up we've got Auntie, who's eighty years old and. We don't know what she has experienced in her life, but surely she had all of these ups and downs as well. And and you know we we may we may not see them, but there is a, there is still a way to connect. And here here we have Apu now being the one who has really you know he he has lived um, you know he's young still, uh, but he has lived and he now has the opportunity I think to connect and to do that for his child and to escort his child through this. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. I, I I think one of the reasons that films like these that can be so tragic can also be life affirming is that they they do allow us to connect with one another in these moments mm-hmm. of deepest despair to to mm-hmm. see the beauty and to see the relationships and to be there for one another in in a way that we couldn't otherwise you know we couldn't connect to someone in in a in a deep way if we didn't have some of these experiences and um with them i I, I, I don't know. There's, I, I do love how Apur Sansar ends because I think that it shows Apu finally saying, "Okay, there's a lot more to live for now. Um, there, there's a. I have a whole life in front of me and many lives yeah. to connect with." And he, and he would not have drawn that conclusion if he had not, you know, taken the risk of, you know, and you know, leaving his exile and entering into a direct encounter with his son uh when when pulu finds him kind of out in that quarry or whatever it was some kind of industrial sort of landscape where apu's just been kind of doing this itinerant worker labor stuff just you know again getting getting enough cash in his pocket to to keep himself fed and you know continue his quest uh, he's told you know he tells his friend uh, I, that boy means nothing to me I, I i have no interest in that child he's he's the cause that of my wife's demise i'm not quoting him exactly here but that, that that's the basic point it's like why would i want to even acknowledge uh, this child i send him money every so often that's my duty I, i'm at least willing to be that responsible but he doesn't really want to have a relationship he doesn't i mean but it's but again so he's got his philosophical rationale but it's also kind of a selfish if not outright cowardly thing he won't even look the boy in the eye he won't even travel to where the boy is being raised uh perhaps out of fear that he'll get emotionally connected or that he'll have to apologize or explain or he'll get confronted he doesn't want to get yelled at by the people who are actually taking care of this child on a very human level, I understand his motivation to want to just avoid that responsibility. But when he finally does yield and decides, okay, I will go see this boy, that that does change something in him. And he does recognize <laughs> that, you know, and he may not even really be recognized by the boy as his father, but he's a friend. He's somebody different. And the boy is himself maybe ready to move on to from this kind of, 
foster home, even though it's, I guess it's a relative family placement that he's got, but it's not really his home. And he's got these imaginary ideas of what his father in Calcutta is all about. And when he sees the actual guy, it's like, no, you're not him. <laughs> and so, you know, there is some interesting, you know, father-son dynamics at, at work here. And, and we've already talked a little bit about uh, Apu's relationship with his own father and, and some of the disconnection that perhaps he experienced with with dad being gone during his early boyhood and then of course dying when he was you know still just an early adolescent so yeah you see you've, you've got some really interesting kind of emotional dynamics happening as Apu is you know recognizing the uh, you know the burdens that he's born in his young existence but I think you know again to, to rise credit to the storyteller's credit he's not going to allow those hardships to kind of encapsulate him or to define him as this, you know, eternal pessimist who just ultimately checks out and leaves everybody else behind so that he can wallow in his own isolation and alienation from it all. He he sees that this boy has a need that he can actually fulfill as his father. And it'll be a unique relationship. You won't be able to brush away the five or six years of, of absenteeism. Uh, there will be issues to be worked through and all of that. But, you know, he puts the boy on his shoulders. And, you know, very significantly, um, in the, the first two films, the, the films concluded with the characters walking off screen to the back of the, of, uh, toward the horizon. And the, the prevailing image here is of Apu and Kalal, his son, or Kajal, I think is his name, um, walking face first into the camera. And I think that's, again, that's a very deliberate artistic choice, mm -hmm. but that's a, it's a very powerful symbol of facing forward and, and entering the frame rather than receding from it. Well, well, Thanks, David. I mean, so so I think that we've been going for quite a while, and it, yeah, this yeah. is inside the box. So we also wanted to talk about some of the other things. It Let's almost it. feels yeah. anticlimactic to do so, you know, in a way to be like, oh, well, done talking with the films. Now let's talk about this supplement or that supplement. Well, but it's it's, it's kind of like the, the box. You know, the box itself is three incredible masterpieces of, of, of cinema and then all the little <laughs> extra bits of people talking about it. Like, so yeah, I, I think it, yeah. it is appropriate to talk about this very handsome, very nice package. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's a beautiful commemorative edition, a nice uh, booklet there uh, with some great essays, lots of good photography. Yeah. And again, striking I, photography I, and images yeah. from the films throughout the whole set. Yeah, and, and each of the, the digipack covers and the interior shots are all very evocative. They, again, did a very wonderful job, as as we pretty much expect, if not take for granted, that they're going to just pick those right moments. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the aesthetics of the of the package are, are very pleasing. And uh, the supplements, you know, there's, there's no, like, early films of Satyajit Rai. There's no, you know, nothing else that he himself made. It's all seems relatively recent uh, you know clips uh, from you know modern times about the you know the films being viewed in retrospect there's a 
there's an Academy Award kind of an honorary uh, statue that he got right at the end of his life, uh, very nicely introduced by Audrey Hepburn. I thought that was a great choice by the Academy to choose her because of her international work and her humanitarian efforts and, and kind of what she dedicated her life to after she'd kind of moved on from being a movie star. And then there's a very moving, you know, clip of Satyajit Ray. I don't know if he's on his deathbed, but it certainly kind of looks like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, kind of accepting this award and, and very tactful, very gracious words towards Hollywood and the Academy. Uh, they recognize that he had done some unique things in the world of film, but, uh, you know, still, I think even at that point, not perhaps sufficiently appreciated just because of the, you know, relative obscurity of his films. He, he was known, he was famous, he was celebrated, but I, I'm not sure how much his films were actually being watched and, and appreciated uh, at, at the time, other than by maybe those insiders who had you know had a, the privilege of seeing his work over the course of those decades. Yeah, the, there's a lot of supplements from actors who were involved in these, including the very mm-hmm. first person that we see, uh, the, the very young Durga. Uh, she yeah. shows up to talk a little bit here um, in these supplements. We've got the supplements about the restoration, both a short version, the little trailer that you you know that made me choke up years ago, and then a more lengthy discussion about the restoration. Um, that that's wonderful. Um, if you don't mind, I want to go into a little bit more detail about the, um, the box itself and about the booklet. So each cover of the little digi packs is a picture of Apu, uh, you know, at that age and played by the, the main actor. And he takes the cover of the whole set. And I, I remember looking at that and thinking, you know, that's fitting. Of course, why wouldn't you do that? But to me, each film has a central female character as well that really stands out. You know, in, in the first one, you've got Durga. Um, in the second one, you've got Sarvajaya. And in the third one, you've got Apurna. And I love that in the booklet, when you open it up and you have the cast and credit um, pages, the first one is a picture of Durga in the rain. And the second mm-hmm. one is Sarvajaya, you know, kind of... Uh, On the train when mm-hmm. she's... In- you, you can see one of those great yeah. shots of an of someone thinking that pensive mm-hmm. thought that she has. I we didn't talk about her too much, um, but this I uh, this actress, you know, not being a professional actress, sure does know how to make sure that we can see so much depth on her expressions. Um, but anyway, Upper Sansar, the the picture on the on the page is of Aparna, Sharmila Tagore. And, um, you know, she and her, her you know, the, the husband, Apu, uh, played by Sumitra Chatterjee, this was their film debuts. Um, yeah. And they both went on to have amazing careers. They show up in the supplements. Uh, they both did more work with... Um, with uh, with Satyajit Rai, uh, you know, per- perhaps most notably to me because it's the one that I've seen. <laughs> we get uh, uh, him again in in Charlotta, and you know, it this this whole package here. It's such a pleasure to have the physical package. This is, you know, I, I can I can get on board to, to to an extent with people who are like, ah, things are digital. I can watch it on the Criterion Channel, um, but the Apu trilogy. This one, I think, is one because it's a you know it, it to me it's a it's a memento it's 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 my own piece of this uh, like I said at the beginning 
exceptional achievement of, of artistic achievement for all of humanity and to be able to hold it in my hands and see all the, all the pictures, you know, the booklet has a big section in it of the storyboards that you talked about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're so just nice to see. Um, you've got those big uh, reeds and flowering grass that, uh, that, um, you know, somehow Rye makes it look like they're blowing in these pictures. I mean, he, he was an artistic genius, uh, mm-hmm. even just as a as a as drawing these things out. You can tell he has a visual flair um, uh, that that isn't just uh, something he can figure out how to pull out on the screen. Uh, but yeah, this this is a set that I think I think you said it at the beginning best. It's a, it's a staple. It's a must. You know. To, what, if you're if you're going out in the, in a Barnes and Noble cell or a Criterion Flash cell, and you're thinking I want to start my collection or I want to make sure I get some of these essential pieces, uh, you can start right here. You know there are others that that could be there as well, but this is this one is definitely right on that tier of yeah, get this one. You know if if, if you haven't seen these films, it's it's time they're available. Uh, yeah, and and beautiful. And 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 the, and the and the beautiful part, the the aesthetics and the incredible imagery, and and let's talk talk about the music as well. Uh, even though it's a straight mono track, um, yeah. these films would not be the same without Ravi Shankar's uh, contributions. I think he's the second to the last credit on each of the films, right before the director, written and directed by Satyajit Ray. Uh, Ravi Shankar, I mean, you know, a lot of people you know know of him as the you know a great influence even on on Western pop music. He was at the Monterey Pop Festival. He performed mm-hmm. at Woodstock. Huge influence on George Harrison, and of course. The whole you know, Indian influence in uh, you know rock music in the you know later 1960s and on, and and an incredible musician and performer in his own right. But you know, he was not a household name by any means. And I think about that. Imagine watching these films in the late 1950s. I mean, there are times when I you know in, in my rewatch in particular where I just kind of cranked up the music a little bit and just let the power of the music kind of come through the speakers. I mean, there's some really heavy riffs going down there, you know, and it's just like these were not commonly heard sounds in Western cultures in the 1950s, unless you were some kind of real, you know, cognoscenti of international music. Um, this this was, these were very exotic, very different types of sounds, or if there was an, an, an Indian element, it was just thrown in sort of as an accent, you know, some kind of exotica type of thing. But the actual you know, music that, that, that Ravi Shankar put together for these films, the, the lyricism and, and how brilliantly, how beautifully and exquisitely they captured so many different emotions, both ecstasy and, and, and grief and sorrow and tragedy. I mean, he's just has a, a fantastic touch. And I, I just really, um, I want to maybe really quickly quote from a, a Wikipedia article of all things about, Rasa theory, which is the uh, it's an aesthetic theory within Indian uh, culture and philosophy. Uh, the word Rasa, R-A-S-A, literally means juice, essence, or taste. It connotes a concept in Indian arts about the aesthetic flavor of any visual, literary, or musical work that evokes an emotion or feeling in the reader or audience but cannot be described. It refers to the emotional flavors or essence crafted into the work by the writer and relished by a sensitive spectator or sardaya, 
literally one who has heart and can connect to the work with emotion without dryness. And and really the rest of that article is really worth checking out. Just to understand that Rye was very deliberately uh, following these principles, apparently, by people who are more informed on the topic than I am. I'm just learning about it. But this idea of, of creating a work that's specifically aiming to produce noble emotions in the in the viewer uh, or the listener in this case, if you think about the music or the way that those art forms kind of combine, uh, there is something really, um, you know, um, exalted about the way sound and image work together in these films uh, beyond just the stories that they're telling. It, it really does stir up pretty strong emotions. I think you and I have both <laughs> kind of... Uh, struggled to, to find the right words at times in our conversation this morning, but I think just landing on this little article kind of really illuminated me as to what Rye was trying to do and that he had already had a developed sense of this aesthetic philosophical approach to creating art. He's trying to cre produce a reaction in sensitive viewers, and I think he succeeds uh, you know, incredibly here. And, and so I think that's one of the reasons why this is a very worthwhile volume to have on one's shelf um, and to pop it in when maybe streaming options aren't available uh, and just to see it in its fullest quality, you know, uh, high res video, uncompressed audio, uh, let, let the, let the sensation sweep over you and, and take it where it will. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate you bringing up uh, Ravi Shankar's music and going into that depth because it's a big part of the film. I don't I don't know a lot about Indian music. You know, I, yeah. I, I hear the sitar, and a lot of that's mm -hmm. because of him. Um, and it's not something that necessarily naturally appeals to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that one of the reasons that that little restoration trailer makes me choke up is because of the power of his music as those yeah. images are flashing by. Um, it isn't just the, you know, there's something, there's something transcendent about it as well. Um, well, some of the most powerful music is that simple flute. I think it's even like a little wood flute. You know, it, it, the sitar is great. Yeah. The percussion yeah. is awesome and dynamic and integrating. <laughs> but it's really that little kind of, that, you know, three or four note little theme the Apu theme, I think, uh, that, that kind of comes up at different times that just, it, it touches the heart. It's, it's really, and, really, yeah. really beautiful. And plays in that little trailer. So I guess listeners, mm -hmm. if you haven't <laughs> seen these, uh, watch that trailer, see if it has an effect on you, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. uh, but pick it up, pick it up. Um, well, David, is there anything else that you want to uh, make sure we touch on before we, we, uh, we kind of, Put a wrap on this episode, but certainly not on our love of these films or our desire to continue the conversation in any form that it can continue in the future. No, I think we've given a, a pretty strong endorsement there, and uh, I definitely, you know, look forward to any kind of responses that listeners may have about this episode about. Satya Rai's films. I definitely uh, do recall the great conversation we had about the the late Rai set, the Eclipse mm -hmm. series there some years ago. Right when this film, right when the set came out, I looked it up. Yeah, it, we did that in December of 2015, and this came out in November 2015. 
Right. So, so you know, this these are kind of the bookends to a really remarkable career. There's a lot of other uh, great Rye stuff that's available on the Criterion channel, as well as some of those titles like Charlotta, The Big City, The Hero, uh, that, that have been released on disc as well. So, you know, more depths to explore, but I really feel like, yeah, he, he was uh, acing it right from the get-go there with these three films. And I definitely uh, hope listeners have enjoyed uh, kind of sitting in on the conversation here and uh yeah excited to kind of keep this series going as we look ahead that's true we've got plans already for the next one we'll probably hint it out a little bit you do a good job on that on facebook david so sure uh, sure. it'll you know here in a month or two we'll we'll be back with uh, episode three but uh you know we, we we hope that everybody is is doing well and you know, these, these are uh, tough times for sure. You know, we're recording this in uh, J- July of, of 2020, and it's really been quite the year so far, and it's certainly not looking like the end of it is going to, uh, m- you know, be any easier uh, by any means. Um, but, you know, we're, we're glad to be here. Uh, these little these little opportunities to, to sit down and talk about some of these transcendent pieces, you know, really do spark... Um, uh, my own uh, a better nature and, <laughs> and desire to to get out there and engage and and help and connect. Uh, so thank you, David. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, listeners, we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.